they were the stepping stone that got us to this future. and robots as usual i'm your host emily and i'm steven and today we have a very special guest dr william hahn hello everyone thanks for joining us today if you were a machine will how would you learn well how do we know we're not machines <laughs> i don't think we really have a great definition of what a machine is or what a machine is not or for that matter what a computer is and what a computer is not and so whatever a computer or a machine might be i want to think of cellos and motorcycles in that same category and how is a cello like a machine or a computer how is a motorcycle like a machine or a computer and then how is the brain like that how is it like a cello how is it like a motorcycle how is it like a computer i think these are these are big questions we don't have answers yet but how would you learn how would i learn uh well the machines today are learning by looking at the internet so we were just doing a project yesterday for computer vision and we did bread versus moldy bread and we were able to go on Google image search and type in moldy bread, and you get hundreds of high-resolution photographs of moldy bread. I mean, it's kind of shocking that that data of such an obscure type exists so readily that we can now do research on that. If you wanted to build a system just a few years ago to think about that, you'd have to first go out and get your own moldy bread and take photographs of it. That's what's really exciting about this new learning revolution is that there's this whole internet of data for the machines to learn from. So you learn from the internet as well as the machines that you teach to learn. Exactly. Fair enough. Okay. That makes me feel a lot better about wasting all my time on Facebook. <laughs> You're learning. <laughs> Marvin Minsky used to talk about this. He said that, you know, people get upset at the, the idea that we're a machine. But, you know, maybe we're the most amazing machine that's ever existed, right? What does it mean to be a machine? Why would that be a bad thing? What makes us so amazing? Energy efficiency, right? That's one, <laughs> right? The fact that we can survive on, you know, potato chips and soda pop and sometimes not even that is really spectacular. I called you doctor earlier. I'm understanding that you're not a physician. No, that's, that's right. I'm a mathematician, really, at heart. So I, I did my college research in math and physics, and then I uh, studied computer science and artificial intelligence and human interaction. Then I came down to the Center for Complex Systems and Brain Science to study neural networks and try to reverse engineer a little bit more some of the secrets from the brain and put those into mathematical form so we can study them as theory. So it's a different way of thinking about the brain, more of a computer and signal processing than maybe scalpel type of thinking. When did you get started? You said you began studying math and physics as an undergrad. When did you get into machine learning? Well, so I've been thinking about AI for a long time now. I didn't realize it for a while, but my, my younger brother is just a couple years younger than me. His favorite movie was Terminator 2. And we used to just watch this, you know, on loop growing up. And in that movie, the, the good guy is also a robot. And so I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I've been thinking about these ideas for a long time. At Guilford, I had heard about a student who had tried to model a neuron the year before when I was a freshman in 2003, and that they weren't really able to do it. They weren't successful. And I, I think I kind of took that as a challenge. I think, all right, that sounds kind of neat. You know, maybe I could pick up where they left off and, and try to simulate some of these brain cells. At the time, I was thinking more in terms of evolutionary theory as well, something called evolutionary algorithms. You know, how can you get computers to learn on that sort of scale, simulating, you know, something more like bugs, how they would learn to interact with the world. So I remember making a simulation of ants, and they sort of had a, a genome, and then they randomized their genome, and then the ant ran in this little one-dimensional maze to see how much it could find its food. So that was kind of the start in this weird sort of overlap between nature and computers. And then one of my professors sent me uh, an article on, on ants and on swarms, and that was really inspiring. I'd always been fascinated by how ants 
solve problems. You know, you leave some food out on the counter or something, and especially down here in Florida, within 10 minutes, you've got like a whole pile of these things, right? They're brilliant. I mean, how is it that they do what they do? What's, what's really neat is ants are kind of like neurons in that any individual ant really can't learn that much. But collectively, as a colony, they can solve these really sophisticated problems. If you take one ant and put it in a little maze like you would a mouse, and say you always put cheese on the left side of the maze, a single ant will never learn that, no matter how many times it finds the cheese and zap it on the right. But somewhere between two dozen ants and 50 ants or something like that, they all start to work together and a cooperation snaps into a productive mode and they can map out the cheese, which is very strange. Did that begin as an undergraduate student, as a graduate student? And uh, what was the progression that made you go from pure math to different areas? Yeah, it definitely started as an undergraduate. You know, I think it's really important that people you start thinking about research right away. And I learned a lot of computer science through the physics department, which I think, you know, gave me a very unique perspective, more like on the modeling side of things and trying to take an abstract system from nature and then build a simulation of that system. When I was looking to go to graduate school, I was through one of my professors. They connected me with a math professor in pure mathematics at Vanderbilt. I went and had a great conversation with that professor. And at the end of it, they said, well, it sounds like you like to study things in the real world. And I said, you know, I think you're right. That was an influence for me to look at the Center for Complex Systems because I wanted to do mathematics, but I wanted to bring it into the real world, to sort of pull it off the chalkboard and have it do things, have it do real things in the real world. Um, one of the things I'm very proud about is all the work in the lab really has like a strong commitment to service, that we could use AI to help real people that have real problems. I think that's what's most important about this technology. That's inspiring. You've been doing this for quite a while. How old would you say machine learning is as a field? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like there's so many great places to start. I don't really know where to begin. What is the definition of a computer? Uh, I actually found an old dictionary not that long ago, and it had, it had some stuff like this. So if you find a dictionary from the 60s or before that, and you look up computer, you'll find that the first definition was a person. So like we have a baker bakes and a, and a butcher and a, and a candlestick maker, a computer was someone who computed. It was a person. It was an occupation you had. And what was interesting is it was actually a classified occupation during the war. So during World War II, if you knew how to do calculation by hand and you were good at this, you got drafted, essentially. And it was largely women who, who had this job. And it's really neat. One of my favorite uh, scientists, Dr. Richard Hamming, he has a whole series. I know you guys have seen some of them about this. <laughs> and he, he talks about having a room full of girls. That that's how they got computing done and that they would have rows and rows of seats, and everybody would be handed a math problem, and then they would crank out, you know, sort of the arithmetic, now what we would use a calculator for. And I just think that's, that's really interesting to think about how you had a problem that was so difficult, you would spread that problem out to, to 50 or 100 people, and they would all work together to get that solution. So in there, Hamming talks about how long it takes to actually solve one problem. If you're quick about it, you can get it done fast, but he says day in and day out, when you really consider doing this full-time, you do about one problem every 20 seconds. So in 20 seconds, these folks could do a single one of these math problems. And the cards we have now, they can do about 9 trillion. <laughs> that's hard to even make sense of. And that's in the 20 seconds? Yeah, no, yeah, so yes, you'd have, you know, how many trillion would you get in the 20 yeah. seconds, right? So it's outrageous, that change. And I don't think we have a story for that culturally. You know, how do we get to the Internet? This this wild frontier that that humanity carved out in the last few decades in the space of computing, they've made extraordinary progress. I mean, talk about, you know, seven league boots that, you know, with computers, you could just march across the world, particularly in science, that we couldn't have dreamed of not that long ago. So I think we need a story 
some sort of mechanism to talk about this. One of the very first computers in the 1940s, the ENIAC, which was the first electronic numerical integrator and calculator, and it came online just at the end of the war, this single computer could do the calculations of 50,000 mathematicians working by hand. 50,000. What was year in, was this? This is the 1940s. Wow. It's like 45. So it's been said that the power pack, the power cord that goes with like a modern laptop, like a Macintosh, the computer chips in the power cord are, have more processing power than the computer that got us to the moon. It's really great. You can go on YouTube and you can find all of these old historical videos of where they put the moon computer together, the Apollo guidance computer. It's amazing. It was knit like a sweater. I'm not even kidding. Like, it was sort of like woven and knit together and folded into this box in a way. It's wild. I mean, it's art that we had to use all of the arts that humans have invented, all the technical arts. You know, when we think about how we build these computers, the computer chips themselves are very much a printing technology, that there are masks and then you overlay this mask and you have these different agents that can, sort of like when you want to pinstripe a car, right? What you would do is you would put down some masking tape Maybe you'd paint the car white, then you'd put down the masking tape, you'd paint the car blue, mm -hmm. then you'd pull back the tape, and you'd have two nice white racing pinstripes down in front of the car. I've never done that to my car. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so maybe... Don't lie, I know you have the flames on the side. It goes faster, right? <laughs> We're all going to put FAU like that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> with duct tape. It'll be awesome. So that's how you make computer chips, right? You can lay out, you can paint the design of the circuit with essentially tape, add another layer, peel back the tape, and you have your computer chip there. You're definitely not the only one who feels this fond of computer history, but you are at least somewhat rare. People like you who understand not only how we're applying it now at some of the highest levels, but how are these systems built. You're mentioning all these old primary components for computers and how they're assembled and why they work to compute things. Why is it that you feel so fond about the history of it? Yeah, I'm, I'm genuinely worried that it's sort of not making it to the future. All of these great ideas, you know, we don't have the stories and we don't have really the education mechanisms for this. So when you think about something like the history of vacuum tubes or the, the mercury arc rectifiers that, that you're mentioning, you know, where are these in the history class? They're not taught in world history. They're not taught in U.S. history, American history. They're not taught in English history or the history of civilization or any of these other classes we might have. They're not taught in engineering departments. They're considered antique engineering techniques, right? This was sort of state-of-the-art a few decades ago, and so they're no longer taught as best practice in industry, but yet they're not old enough to be history. They're not talked about in the sociology department as sort of really shaping our society. They're not really talked about in the psychology department about how they've reshaped how we think about the world. So they're really not anywhere. And that worries me because they might not be, say, like the vacuum tube, which is sort of a, a light bulb technology. Right? Something originally called the Edison effect, where Edison noticed if you put a third wire into a light bulb, that something funny happened with the current. And then a, a guy named Lee DeForest took this and adapted it into the audion tube, which is where we got old-time radio, you know, where you could have this, this light bulb vacuum tube where you could feed in the soft talking into a microphone, and that would make the signal strong enough that you could broadcast it across the country. Vacuum tubes changed the world. They changed the world almost overnight. It was something that just didn't exist before, and then it came onto the scene, and it caused radio, television, you know, transmission, all kinds of amazing capabilities. But they were so powerful that they got us to the next layer. They got us to the next type of physics, the solid state, the, the computer chips themselves. And so because they were so powerful, we didn't need them that long, right? It's like the genie lamp. Like, if it's really a genie, you only need three wishes, right? It's a genie, so you can ask it for whatever you want. 
So this, this magical lamp, there's actually a cool video, and it's called, you know, Aladdin's Magical Lamp. But we don't talk about them. They're not in history class. They're not in technology class. You can go take a course in physics, and they don't talk about them. But I think they're very powerful ways to think about the world. They have great physics, great math. They were the stepping stone that got us to this future. So I kind of see the modern world of, you know, smartphones and Internet as sort of this cool, this awesome treehouse that science has built. 50 feet up in pine trees or whatever. And the next generation, right, so the middle school kids have built this treehouse, and, and the elementary school kids are down at the base of the tree, and they're looking up, and they say, that looks so, so much fun. How did you get up into the tree? Well, the older kids, they built a rope ladder, right? But now they've pulled the rope ladder up. And so they pulled the rope ladder up into the treehouse, and they're going, nah, 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 you can't play in, the, in this modern world. And so I see this as a, a serious situation, that previous generation had it easier because they were here as computers grew up. So they got to watch computers grow up. I sort of got to see the internet grow up a little bit. You're getting to see AI grow up. But once it's sort of sophisticated enough, it's hard to get into it. It's hard to appreciate that it was real human beings who did this the first time. I think we think of technology like a smartphone. It comes from the mall. You know, I think most, like most young people think of this as something that you bought. You buy technology. Rather than this is something that humans created. Something that didn't exist just a few years ago. No one on the planet had this capability or this technology. And to show the path of how we got there, that it started with these weird light bulb looking things called vacuum tubes, and from there it went to relays, and from there to transistors, and so on. So I think that path is, is so important. And it might not be where we are now, but it's how we got there. And that might be the easiest path to bring the next generation along, rather than trying to jump them into the deep end where we are now, say, look, this is how we got here. One of the stories that was rather mind-blowing to me, and I had to sit there and like think about this for a while, was one of the first quote-unquote computers, but it wasn't just you know a room full of people doing arithmetic, but it was learning how to play tic-tac-toe with matchboxes. I came across that in an old documentary film about computers from, from the mid-80s, and I would encourage everybody to go and you know dig these things up. And in this one, they're going over the basics of machine learning and how can you get a, an algorithm or a, a process, some sort of mechanical clockwork type machinery to think about solving a problem like tic-tac-toe. So tic-tac-toe is close to my heart because I tried to tackle this problem myself in high school with C++. And I thought, <laughs> well, surely I'll just be able to write, I learned some programming at that point, and I thought, this is an easy problem, I'll just write a program that does that. But even problems as simple as tic-tac-toe, if you don't have a mathematical framework, it gets out of hand too quickly. Even a miniature problem like tic-tac-toe, in that really in the end, mathematics is ultimately more powerful than programming, or if we, if we think about them at the same time, that we, we don't want to think of them as separate. We want to think of the program as a mathematical object, that that's really powerful. In this really clever demonstration, they took a few, almost like a, a few hundred of these little matchboxes, right? I didn't count, but there's tons of these things. And on the front of each matchbox, they wrote down one possible combination for the tic-tac-toe game. So you can imagine that they drew the tic-tac-toe board on every matchbox, and then they filled out some places for the X's and O's. So here's one possible state that the game could be in. So when the thing starts, you'd pick the blank, because one of the boxes had no moves yet. You would pick up that box, and in there would be a bunch of little tiny marbles, and each one had a different color. You would shake the box and tilt it to a corner, and one of the beads would end up in the corner. And so the box has essentially made a choice for you. They're sort of like <laughs> dice, they had, they had a yellow one and a blue one and a red one, and each of the colors corresponds to a move. If you get the yellow, then you're going to make a move in the upper right. If you get the blue, you'll make a move in the lower left, and so on. You'd look at the state of the board that it was in, and so you might have an X in the upper left and an O in the middle, 
And so you'd go and you'd pull that matchbox with that pattern, you'd shake it up, you'd tilt it to the corner, and you'd pull out the tiny marble that was in the corner, and that would tell you the next move. Now the cool part is, is you would then change the marbles depending on if you win or lose. So if that marble you choose, say you pulled out a yellow one and that told you to make a move in the upper left, if that caused you to lose, you would remove that yellow marble from that box. So now it was less likely, or if that was the last yellow marble, it would be impossible to choose that move from that position because it caused a failure and you don't want to fail again. If it caused a win, you would add a yellow marble. So now there's two yellow marbles, which doubles the chance of choosing yellow in that situation. We can kind of think of this as like a model for brain cells, that brain cells are trying to choose actions and you want your cells to vote on this. And anytime they vote for an action that causes something negative to happen, well, you want them to vote less for that action in the future. And anytime something good happens, you want them to be more likely to respond with that action in the future. So it was a very fascinating early, you know, approach to a simple algorithm. And what's awesome is it's in the real world, right? It's not software, it's not a simulation, or maybe it might be a simulation, but it's, it's real little boxes, right? And so it's like an actual brain in the cool sense. That's pretty awesome. I haven't heard that story. You're going to be thinking about it for the next 12 hours. Just, I'm sorry if you have any more classes today, but... You're going to walk in and there'll be matchboxes all over your desk. <laughs> I don't apologize. You're a research scientist at Florida Atlantic University. So what do you like to think about and what do you like to tell people about, given access to young minds? I like to think about too many things, but <laughs> I think what helps constrain what to think about is to go back and look at all these amazing ideas that people came up with in the, in the last century that we are just so privileged to have access to these high-speed computers and all of this data. But there was all of these great minds who were thinking in this space decades before us that didn't have the data or the computer, but they had a lot of brain power and they thought a lot about these problems. And so for me, it's really inspiring to go back and look at what people were talking about, the problems they had, the challenges they faced, and can we kind of rethink that? So it was a very famous project. One of the you know, sort of the seeds for the lab in general was the Alvin project. And so this was at Carnegie Mellon in the late 80s, and it was an autonomous land vehicle in a neural network. And so what they did is they took an oversized army ambulance Humvee, and they hollowed it out, and they filled it up with computers. Computers were enormous at the time, the size of large refrigerators. And you could put the students on board the vehicle, and they had the cameras, giant television cameras. You know, they didn't have the little cameras like we have now. I mean, you had a mm -hmm. big TV equipment, which is huge. Equipment. Uh, I had a gas generator on there to run all the electronics. And they were able to get this thing to sort of scoot down a path at just a few miles an hour in the late 80s. And it was an enormous undertaking to, to pull this off. For me, it was really inspiring to reproduce that project with just a few hundred dollars of parts and, and a modern laptop, essentially. That we can redo some of the grandest experiments of science. We can redo them, like in your garage. You can, you can try this yourself. You can replicate this work. And we can do it in a, in a manner that's safe and it's low cost, and we can rethink these. I talked to some engineers and some folks who told them about this project of our self-driving little cars. They said, oh, we've done this. We did all this. We did it in the 80s. And I thought, well, that's cute. You know, like, what does that, what does that mean? Because the first computer that I got to use in the 80s was 25 megahertz. Pretty fast by today's standards. Yeah, right? 25 megahertz. I remember, you know, much later in, in, in the, the late 90s, you know, getting a, a one gigabyte computer for my uncle. And I remember my dad, we were helping him set it up. Wait, storage or, or storage? Oh, storage. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, no way you'd have that much RAM, right? No way. No, storage, the hard disk, right? 
and it was a one gigabyte hard drive. And I, I remember my dad saying to my uncle, he said, what are you going to do with it? He said, you're <laughs> never going to fill it up. It was, and there wasn't anything you could do with it. This was before digital cameras. This was before MP3s. This was before, you know, the internet as we know it now. So it was, that was seen as obnoxious. Now, if you have a gigabyte on your phone, you're panicking because you're sort of running out of space. <laughs> it's not uncommon now to have trillions of bytes of information from a consumer piece of equipment. So, I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary how fast this has changed. Do you like to teach people about how to think or about the history or some combination of both? I think people already know how to think. Thinking is what we do naturally. What we want to do is give people an idea of what's worth thinking about. And then we don't want to tell them how to think because people might, they might think of it in a new way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what's so exciting and rewarding about working with students is that everybody sees the world in a fundamentally different way. And I think that's important to remember with, with these neural networks is they're not, they're not going to be human brains. They're not going to be even animal brains as we, as we think of them. They're not going to be like cats or dogs or horses or people or dolphins. They're going to be very, very different. And they'll see the world a different way, and that might be really useful. So one of the big breakthroughs in AI this year was the Go Championship. This uh, ancient board game has been around 3,000 years. It's a professional occupation in many countries. And it was an absolute revolution to get the AI to win this. Uh, Experts thought it was going to take another 10 years. What was really interesting is during the tournament, about you know, 20, 30 minutes into one of the matches, the computer made a very, very strange move. And the people sort of running it, monitoring, they thought, you know, maybe it's broken. Yeah, it moved into the sixth row, right? Yeah, it was like sort that. of a very strange. It wasn't really against the rules or against the regulations, but it, it just didn't make any sense. And so people thought, surely this thing makes it maybe had a bug in it, messed up. And then sure enough, maybe 30, 40 minutes later, the computer ends up winning the match because of that move. Now, what's really exciting is human beings are very excited about this new development. This is now injection of creativity. People hadn't thought of that, and now they're thinking about that. They've written books and given talks and having whole conferences about what does this move mean? How can it change the way they think about the game? The same thing happened in Backgammon in, I think it was 96. They had a computer that was able to win and beat the Backgammon champion. And it also developed a new strategy, a strategy that, that no human had used before, but now has become a very common strategy for people to use. So I think that's, that's inspiring, that the computers might be able to show us a way of looking at the world that we hadn't seen before. You've talked about the difference between an engineer and a scientist and somewhat in that story there. Why do you consider yourself a scientist or a mathematician instead of an engineer? But please start with Hamming's definition. Yeah, so i got <laughs> yeah. to tell, tell Hamming's joke. So uh, Richard Hamming, who we were, we were mentioning earlier at the Bell Telephone Laboratories, he was sort of in both. But he says, in engineering... If you don't know what you're doing, you should not be doing it. But in science, if you know what you're doing, you should not be doing it. And so it's sort of a joke that science is about pushing the unknown. Later he makes a joke, or it's actually Alan Kay who makes this joke. He says, you never want to fly in an airplane designed by a scientist because they're just as happy if it crashes. (laughs) Because they've learned something new. So it's a very different way of thinking about the world, that science is almost trying to break Things. It's trying to figure out what we don't know, where the story falls apart. Whereas engineering, it's, it's about being careful, and it's about knowing what we know and being sure that we know it. So and then Hamming goes on, he says, we rarely see the pure form. As practicing scientists, we have to also adopt that engineering mentality sometimes, and I think every engineer should also try to think like a scientist at times. I think it's, it's very important. It's probably just an unfortunate historical artifact that that these are really seen as something different. I was just watching a talk from some folks from MIT, and they have a motto of mind in hand. 
and, and I like this, and they were sort of explaining that you, you have to have the practical arts along with the, the academic side, that you want to be able to build stuff. You want to be able to put it into the real world, that we want to take the theory and, and put it into practice. And a lot of people think, well, that takes away from the theory, but it doesn't. It, it constrains your theory in a very, very useful way. Imagine that you're a robot, you're this hyper-intelligent machine, and you can think any possible thought. What do you think about? Right? That's a problem in itself. When you can think <laughs> all possible thoughts, what do you think about? Being constrained in the real world, it, it's, a, it's a really important thing. Uh, I was just watching another talk when they were talking about you know, computer programming and that you shouldn't be upset that you're constrained by the hardware design. I mean, that's the whole point, is to, is to get this thing to run on real hardware, on real chips. I think I'm stunned beyond being able to form another coherent question. So we'll have Dr. William Hahn back on Kian Robots in just a, a few short weeks then. Looking forward to it. All Thank right, you great. very much. See you next time on Kian Robots.